0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so happy to present part two of my interview with Tony Sheldon, where he discusses his New York career, including his roles on Broadway in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Amelie, and off-Broadway in Charles Bush's Cleopatra and the Bandwagon at Encores. I know you're all eager to hear what he has to say so here he is again, Tony Sheldon. So I would love to start by asking you about the Follies concert that you did.
1: That was extraordinary, that was part of um, the Melbourne International Festival in 1993 and the artistic director, um, Richard Werrett, um, had been also the artistic director of the Sydney Theatre Company where I'd done quite a lot of shows. And um, I've done Private Lives and Company and um, Into the Woods and various things. Um, And he suddenly said, I've got the rights to the Follies concert and I would like you to direct it. It came so out of the blue. I I said, why don't you do it? He said, I think you've got more of a feel for the, the property. So I said, all right, but I want to cast it as if it was being produced by jc williamson's like you know in in the 60s i want to use all those those australian stars who came up through the ranks i don't want to cast it you know with gimmick people yes. and uh so then began the 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 whole thing i, I sent letters to people like Joan Sutherland, the opera singer living in Switzerland, said, yeah, would you be interested in doing One More Kiss? Uh, I thought, why not start at the top? Uh, And uh, it it was a a fabulous and exciting process. A lot of people came out of retirement. Um, I got uh, letters from people who I didn't even know were still around. Um, a, A man called Jeff Warren, who was an American, um, he had been on Broadway in um, *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He replaced Russell Knipe in, in Call Me Madam on Broadway. Um, he'd been in One Touch of Venus with, with with Mary Martin. And he came to Australia in 1961 to play the king in The King and I. And uh, he stayed and um, became an acting teacher. And And I hadn't heard of him in 30, 40 years and he wrote to me and said you know i uh, you may not know me but i would be interested in auditioning for the role of ben and i said look ben is actually cast and i i think jeff was 70 73 or something when he wrote to me and i said but roscoe's open and uh he sent me a, an audio tape of himself singing beautiful girls and i said you're in and uh it was wonderful. I, my, my Phyllis was the woman who played Fanny Bryce out here, Jill Perryman. Um, my uh, Ben was Louis Fiander, who'd played John Adams in 1776 out here and in the West End. Um, the, the buddy was a wonderful man called Reg Livermore, who um, 10 years later was going to be Max Bialystock and the producers with me. And, and um, he'd been around since the 50s and he'd done hair in Australia. Um, it, it was wonderful. I was my, my, mother was, was in it. She did Broadway baby. Um, I was able to get Maggie Fitzgibbon out of retirement. Maggie had moved to London and done Do Re Mi in the West End, your favorite show, um, with Max Bygraves and, uh, she, she, um, replaced Millicent Martin in Side by Side by Sondheim in the West End. She hadn't done a show in Australia since Sail Away, um, in 1963 um so she came back um uh, she came out of retirement and did carlotta she did i'm still here uh she absolutely stopped the show cold i mean it, it was the whole process was so exciting we had five days to get it on much like in, in the, the lincoln center version so nerves were running high and uh the the, the spanner that got thrown in the works was that the woman who I had cast as Sally, Geraldine Morrow, um, who was was Sally. I mean, she she played Little Mary Sunshine in Australia. She'd done um, the 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 ingenues in Once Upon a Mattress and and all those shows in in the. the she'd been tapped in in King and I. Um, she was a little petite blonde, and she got a back injury. And her doctor told her she couldn't do the show. And but she was reluctant to let it go. And like, I th- I think I even replaced her. I, I I I was I brought in an opera singer to, to do it, Margaret Haggard, who who turned out to be fabulous. But um uh, Geraldine turned up on the first day of rehearsal uh at my hotel looking immaculate with her hair done. And, it was sort of like she still wanted to be a part of it but i said but your doctor said you can't be in it and she went i know i know it was like she couldn't let go it was it was absolutely heartbreaking um but it was it was the most thrilling process and everybody came knowing it and and uh, we we had a wonderful choreographer ross coleman um who ended up doing priscilla many years oh. later. Um, he, he did wonders, um, in the short time we had, and we had a, a costumier who literally was making follies outfits out of wire and cotton wool. I mean, the, the girls looked astounding, uh, and, uh, people were scalping tickets for $2,000 wow. each out on the street. Yeah, it was, it was sold out the day the, the, the bookings opened because nobody had ever put together all those people in one place. It was. It was remarkable. And after Beautiful Girls, I, I thought we weren't going to be able to go on. I mean, the applause just went on and on. And the girl, the, the whole cast was just left standing there. It was, it was really overwhelming. Uh, and we did it for one night, and we weren't allowed to record it. Uh, Flora Roberts, Stephen Sundheim's agent, we asked if we could film it. And Flora Roberts said, no, no, no. Um, no, there would not to be any recordings of Mr. Sondheim's shows. And I found out later that after the concert and, and the word got out, and you know how how successful it was, that Mr. Sondheim said, Well, where's the tape? <laughs> and we said, Well, we weren't allowed to do it. And he said, Well, normally uh, at one of my shows, the the overtures are drowned out by the sound of cassettes clicking on in the audience so he was used to everybody doing bootlegs and he was really shocked that we just didn't go ahead and film it um but uh there is there is some surviving video of a dress rehearsal um so you can sort of see a, a, a few very rough uh versions of uh, some of the numbers um they they occasionally crop up on youtube
0: was directing as sort of a career for you something that you had had in mind, or
1: it it wasn't? But but my dad being a television producer, um, it it I I had choreographed stuff uh, early uh, in uh, in my twenties, and uh, I mean for somebody who who was a non dancer, I, I was getting very proficient as I went along, uh, faking it well and. Uh, so the directing thing was just something that uh, I fell into. And I went through a, a a period where I got offered a lot of really interesting jobs and I got to direct um, She Loves Me and I got to direct Pal Joey and Jacques Brel and and uh, a play by Anne Mirror called Afterplay um, and, and Follies. And then sort of nothing came of it. It was weird. It all just sort of dribbled away. So, yeah, it, it was just like a period of my life that was very exciting. But then it stopped.
0: (laughs) We talked about bringing your interpretation to classic shows as an actor, but I'd also want to know about how you did that as a director with She Loves Me and Jacques Brel and all of the other ones that you did.
1: Um, Because I'm such a traditionalist, um, I I didn't want to um, stray too far. I didn't want to impose a concept on anything. Um, Although with, with She Loves Me, it was interesting. I asked the cast to do it with their own accents, with Australian accents, and they were shocked because they came in using American accents. And I said, why are you using American accents? The show is actually set in Budapest. And they said, but it's a Broadway show. And I said, that's not doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I would like you to to use your own voices. So they, they had a bit of a problem getting past that. Um, but I, I was trying to break people of the that thing of oh, it comes from America, therefore we have to do it like the Americans did. Um with Jacques Brel, um I actually did it with uh, uh the graduating class of um uh, the Western Australian Performing Arts, which is where Hugh Jackman went. Uh, he wasn't in my year, but um, so so it was a it was a large group. So uh, I, I set it in um, a bar, a bistro, and uh, so everybody was was there, and it was all the different characters all all night were were in this this bar. So that that uh, that concept worked well for that for that show um because everybody was playing a character all night yeah, it's it's work working out what's the best i mean like and, and mirror's play after play uh, dictated you had to have a revolve which was weird because it was set in a restaurant um and you thought why is there a revolve? but it uh, it turned out as the play went on that all the, the the characters were dead and so this restaurant was some sort of limbo uh some sort of gateway to heaven um, so then there was no dictate in the script about how you used the revolve. Um, so uh, that was fun. You could, you could experiment with, uh, so that by the end, once the audience did realize what was going on, I just set the revolve going really, really slowly, like constantly so that the people sitting around this table which just suddenly it was like it was taking off somewhere to like a spaceship. Um, so yeah the, the, each project dictated um the 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 form, I guess. and uh, it was a, it was a lot of fun.
0: And did you sort of keep that directorial eye in your acting, or did you try to avoid that?
1: It's um it's gotten me in trouble, and that I tend to um, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's useful for me. As an actor, but uh, it it gets me in trouble sometimes when you you you're in a show and you you start to second guess the actual director. Um, I've also been a resident director on shows, which um, they don't do so much in America, but they do it here. That um, that once the director has left, there is the, there's a resident director that stays and keeps the show in check and um i did that on fame uh we did fame out here for um for over a year and i was in it as well i was playing uh, one of the teachers uh but that meant that i had to replace people and uh, rehearse understudies and and uh that was terrifying there were so many injuries on fame because it was it was a dance show and mm-hmm. there were a lot of young people who had never done a stage show and the brilliant choreography was extraordinarily difficult and so people started getting injured from like in previews and uh i didn't have the chance to start the understudy rehearsals it was like i i, I was getting calls at 9am on a matinee day saying the girl playing carmen the lead is is out today and the, the understudy never had a rehearsal so we would have to put somebody in from 10 10 till 1, get a costume on them, rehearse them with the pianist, do all the blocking, do all the choreography, and then they'd be on. And it was, it was you were like a football coach. They'd come off after a scene and you'd be standing there walking them to their next exit backstage saying, you know, now in this scene, you're saying to Shlomo uh, that, you know, he's got to keep playing the oboe. And then you'd push them on. It was, it was the weirdest thing. And this seemed to be happening every single day. So by the time the show opened, we had our first understudy call, everybody had been on. <laughs> They'd all played the roles. So that, that was uh, fairly hair-raising. Um, we had Thelma Houston was our leading lady who had, uh, had a big hit with Don't Leave Me This Way, um, but she had never done a stage show before and she was very, very nervous. So, uh, there was a, a lot of rallying, Thelma, you know, holding her hand, um, but she, she was wonderful. We absolutely adored her. Um, but uh, but yes, sometimes the directorial eye has gotten me in trouble and, and, and made me grumpy if I felt that uh, the show wasn't going the way it should. You know?
0: Well, so I'd love to give you a few more names of shows you did and ask you to just say something about each of these great roles that you played. Sure. And, and so the first, I guess, would be in Company, which I know you mentioned earlier
1: yes I played Paul in that um it was uh Company was one of those shows I was uh the first I first became aware of it when I read the review of the Broadway production in Time magazine that called it a landmark musical and and I remember seeing a picture of Beth Howland and and Dean Jones and going that looks weird and I came home from school one day so I, I would have been 14 15 and uh there were three albums my mother had left on the record player, and they were Coco, Applause, and Company. And a friend had sent these three LPs out. Well, of course, I was beyond excited. And um, I played a couple of tracks of Coco. I went, oh, yeah, okay." And I played a couple of tracks of Applause and went, yeah, fine. And then as soon as those first notes of Company, it was like my hair stood on end and my skin <laughs> goosebumps. It, I had never heard anything like it. And Company became my obsession from that second, as I'm sure, you know, everybody did at that time when we heard that, that score. And um, when I heard that the Sydney Theatre Company was doing it, now this was 1986, so this was 16 years later, um, and it was the Australian premiere. And Richard it was directing it, Ross Coleman was choreographing it, the same people I had, who I just mentioned for Follies. Um, and it was pretty much cast, I think. Now, I don't have a huge vocal range, um, so I, I was concerned whether I could sing any of it. And I wrote to the director and said, I, w- I will come in and sweep the floors to be involved in this show. And he said, well, I haven't cast Paul. And he said, it just depends on whether you can sing Two Days for Amy. Oh. And um, so I went in and I sang it and I was able to hit the notes. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was in. It was an, it was an exemplary ensemble of, um, of people uh, they they were the cream of the the crop in that cast, and it was um, it was a very original production. It, it preempted that white box that is in the current Broadway production, um, except we did it like it was a department store window, and there were actually when the audience came in, there were ten uh, mannequins, shop dummies, in an, in our costumes. Uh, five couples, uh, like in a shop window. And Bobby walked on and was looking at them. And it was like he was shopping uh, uh, for marriage. It was like, you know, and then um, the lights went down after the party. And when they came up, we had replaced the mannequins in the identical positions. And we went into the Bobby, Bobby calling to him through the shop window. So it was interesting to see the new production. Uh, using the same sort of look um and again it was one of those shows that after we did the opening number that the the roof fell in I mean the place just mm. went insane and uh, it was a very very happy time but we didn't get to tour it or anything it was a limited run um we ran for a couple of months but it was in summer it was around um new year's christmas so we we were all dashing off to the beach but on matinee days between shows we were all socializing together it was uh it was a very happy time, and I cried bitterly on the closing night oh. when it finished. Yeah,
0: and then Private Lives was another role that you took on.
1: Yes, um, uh, again a role that I tried to talk myself out of. Um, I replaced uh, Lewis Fiander, the the guy who who was my Ben in in Follies. Um, Lewis was very. Um, He'd spent a lot of his career in England. And in fact, he did that, the musical Noel and Gertie um, Mm. in London with Patricia Hodge. And uh, he he was playing Elliot uh, for the Melbourne Theatre Company, but he was unavailable to do the tour, uh, to do the Sydney season. And uh, the director rang me and asked me to do it. And I immediately started giving him other names of people, you know, well, why don't you get Hugo Weaving? He'd be wonderful. but he said, no, i I want you. Um, so, yes, it was it was a real challenge. um, and it was a part I never thought I would get to do. It was interesting. I, I was going through a rather sad part point in my life. i was I was rather unhappy at the time. And um a friend of mine said that i i I brought a great sense of ennui onto the stage with me. Um, when I came on, he said it was like it was startling. So maybe it worked for, for Elliot at the time, I don't know, but I was feeling very emotional and I I fell very much in love with um, Pamela Rabe, the, the wonderful woman playing Amanda. Um, whenever I was on stage with her, I, I absolutely used to look into her eyes and I would, uh, there's that section where we used to sing um, some Someday I'll Find You and in the script it says that that they actually sing a couple of songs leading up to that. And they gave me, um how deep is the ocean? How much would I love you? How much would I cry?" Uh, and I every night when I sang it, the tears used to pour down my face. um so uh, i I just remember it being something of a it was a it was a roller coaster to do that role. You get to do everything. uh it calls on all your skills and um so it was it was very satisfying, very satisfying.
0: And uh, lastly, The Odd Couple, I would love to ask you about.
1: Well, this was the female version that I was oh. in, the one that, that um, it was Rita Moreno and, and Sally Struthers did it on Broadway. And uh, so in the female version, the two pigeon sisters who live upstairs are the Costa Thuela brothers, two Spanish two Spanish twins. And um, so a very dear friend of mine, John Hannon. Uh, and I were were cast as the twins, and it it is it's one of the funniest scenes. Um, it's it's actually funnier than the pigeons sister's scene, and um, they're dressed identically in white suits with with red ties. And we had we both dyed our hair jet black, and we had black mustaches, and we were very very tanned, and um, it, it it's all. Wonderful fractured English jokes, you know, the, the not understanding words, and and uh, it it is it's truly one of the funniest scenes ever written. And on opening night, when we knocked on the door and the door opened and the two of us were standing there, both holding identical bunches of roses and identical boxes of heart shaped candy, the laugh I swear to God went went on for two minutes. I mean, we couldn't move. We just stood there. The laugh was so long. And um I made the fatal mistake of uh there there was one restaurant in Sydney at the time that stayed open until three AM. And on certain nights of the week, if you stayed up late enough, the the morning papers would come out with the reviews. It wasn't like New York, it was it was only like one one particular day of the week that the, the you would get the review the next morning. And I said to the two women playing the leads, oh, no, it was their, it was their idea. Let's go to Neptune's, this restaurant, and we'll go and we'll wait for the reviews. So we went and we had a riotous night of champagne and eating and so and so, and at like 2.30am, the, the the papers came out and one of the girls opened it and it said, if you don't see any other show all year, go to see The Odd Couple for Tony Sheldon and John Hannon as the costume. And this was the two female leads. Were, their faces dropped. It was like, what? <laughs> the review was about us and our 10-minute scene in Act 2. So uh, that's put a bit of a pall on the party after.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And so, of course, you eventually made your Broadway debut with Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, but had you thought about going to Broadway before or had there been an opportunity or anything like that?
1: Um, England had beckoned a couple of times. Um, I was in a musical called The Venetian Twins, an Australian musical that at one point looked as though it might go to London. That fell through. And then when I was rehearsing... The producers with the Broadway production team, and and I remember they had announced that it was going to open in London with Richard Dreyfus. Uh, and I casually said to Patrick Brady, um, the the musical director, I said, "And uh, who's who's going to play Roger in the West End?" And he said, "Well, at the moment, you." <laughs> And he actually said it in front of the whole cast. We were having a musical call and I sort of reared back and he said, they they can't find anybody yet. And so I got terribly excited about that. And, and of course, they found somebody. I mean, why wouldn't they? Um, So that was dangled in front of me. What happened with Priscilla was I was doing the producers and I heard there was going to be a 10-day workshop of Priscilla. Now, I had no great love for the film, um, and I didn't especially want to be in another role in a dress after Roger Debris, uh, but it was a director that I had not worked with, Simon Phillips, who ran the Melbourne Theatre Company, and I thought, well, it might lead to a job at the MTC. Uh, And also my favourite choreographer, Ross Coleman, was was choreographed. And the musical director was Spud Murphy, who I'd done a cabaret show with. So I thought, yeah, it's 10 days out of my life. And uh, I went down there and the original script that we we worked with was written by a man called Alan Scott, an Englishman, who in fact created The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, that wonderful chess thing. It's that guy. Um, He had written this treatment of... Priscilla, that had very little to do with the film. It was it was a completely original story. And the director and creator of the film, Stephen Elliott, was there in the room on the first day. And he, he obviously did not want to make his film into a musical. He was very glum about it. And as we did the, the reading of this script, he sat with his head in his hands. He did not look up. And we all, it was a very strange vibe in the room. And we all thought, oh, you know, this isn't going to go anywhere. And um, we spent a couple of days working on it. And then finally, one day, Simon literally threw the the pages in the air, the director, and he said, we're not going to do this. He said, we're going to go back to the film. He said, I'm going to go and transcribe the screenplay and I'll bring it in tomorrow and we'll start with that and so he did he literally sat and copied it from a video of the film and came in with the pages and um we we sat with a big whiteboard and we chose moments in the script and we all threw out ideas for for songs now he was very he was very honest about it he said all right we could commission an original score for this by some Australian composers he said that would be wonderful we would be advancing the cause of the Australian musical and we'd be doing morally the right thing he said and then we could spend millions of dollars on it and it could close in six weeks and that would be the end of it he said or we could use all the songs in on the film soundtrack he said that are really famous and they're, they're really associated with the movie uh, he said, and uh, we'll have a jukebox show, but it might guarantee us a life. And so we sort of reluctantly said, "All right, let's go with the jukebox option." And so we all threw in ideas. Um, you know, we 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 worked out where we could use the songs from the film, but we 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 all came up with suggestions. Then it became a matter of getting the rights. Um, and then Ross started choreographing to that material. Well, he came up with an opening number uh, for Downtown, the, the Petula Clark song, that was some of the best choreography any of us had ever seen. It was so thrilling. It was it brought to life all of King's Cross and the the the, the, the sort of the milieu of where the drag club was, the Tick worked, and um, sadly. It was never filmed or recorded, so when when we finally ended up doing the show, he couldn't remember the number, and um, we also didn't use any of those people from the workshop in the show, so no, none of the none of the dancers were there. It, it was lost in the mists of time. This wonderful piece of work. Um, so uh, yeah, it was it was a real work in progress, and I suddenly realised that the structure of the film because it was a road movie, it's that wonderful thing of you've got your three central characters and in every scene, they're going someplace new and they're meeting a new bunch of people, which works perfectly for a musical because it's completely unpredictable. and, And each scene is bringing an entirely new town with different characters and a different feel. And I thought, this is so well structured this is this is magic and um we were spending so much time we we didn't have the divas at that time we didn't have the three girls we were singing all our own stuff the three guys so we were singing every single number in the show and ross coleman finally said after like a week if i don't hear a female voice soon i'm going to scream (laughs) and so um somebody, genius in the room, came up with the idea of the three divas, the spirit of disco, and that these girls would hang like angels in the air, and that whenever we were on stage in drag performing, we would be miming to them, but whenever we were just being us off stage, we would sing in our own voices. So that was a wonderful thing. And um, I started to get really excited about it as it went on. I thought, oh, this this has got legs, this show. And we were spending so much time working on the numbers that the script was sort of just laying there. And so I was going home every night. I had nothing to do except learn my lines. So I started to the directorial eye and my writer's experience from writing soap operas and all that for, for years. I started to restructure scenes and i'd go in the next morning and i'd be handwriting it and i'd grab simon on his way in and i'd say what do you think of this and he'd read it and if he liked it he'd say give it to the secretary to type up and it would go in so i started to feel a sense of i was a part of the creatives and i'm i'm sure that's why simon had me in the room i mean he he knew what he was getting when he cast me. He, he knew that I had all these other skills and that I had, you know, years of experience with musical theatre. Um, so we we did a presentation. I wasn't expecting the fact that suddenly there were all these people, there were all these money people, and there were also all these creatives, uh, costume people and, and things. And I said, uh, what's going on? And they said, oh, we've got an opening date. I said, excuse me? They said, yeah, we're we're actually going into production in five months. Well, I didn't know this. Um, So suddenly there was a a lot at stake and nobody had cast us, you know, we were just doing a workshop. But anyway, I I realized that the part was a very good fit for me. Um, I I came from a background of, of being around a lot of those drag clubs. Um, a lot of those people who who worked at Lay Girls, where my character Bernadette worked, the real club, uh, used to come to our parties at my mother's house. Um, I, I had always been around drag queens and transsexuals um, as as friends, and uh, I, I had danced in a drag show once uh, for a friend who 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 was. Um, producing and starring in one and, and said, one of my dancers is sick, would you come in? And, and I sort of faked my way as the male dancer in a drag show once. Um, so it was a world I was very familiar with and very comfortable with. Uh, so anyway, the, the, the reading went spectacularly well. Then I had to sit and watch while they cast the actual Australian production, because I had no guarantee that it was gonna be me. And all my friends were ringing up and saying they were going for my part and asking me for tips, audition tips. What should I sing? And uh, the, the worst part was when my agent rang and said, oh, they want you to come in and audition. Well, I was devastated. And that was when the dam broke. I went and sat in the park and sobbed. And um, the, the director rang me and said, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. He said, your name wasn't was never meant to be on the list. He said... Just hang tight. He said the producers just wanted to see who's out there. I knew they were looking for a bigger name, you know. Um, anyway, I got it. Yes. And um, it, was, it was very exciting. And it, again, for the entire 18 months or whatever it was that we did it, it continued to be a work in progress because they were so fixated on getting the bus right and all the technical aspects of it, that the script was sort of the last thing that that got fixed. Yeah. So we were forever trying out new scenes and, and adding things that went in for a day and then went out. We had a song that went in for one preview and then was gone the next night. Um, it, it was a constant change. Uh, but I, I have to say that when I went for my first costume fitting, there was a book of all the the costume designs, and I laughed out loud. It's the first time I have ever just looked at a set of costumes and gone, "Oh, this is going to be a hit," <laughs> simply because of the costumes. And and I was proved right. You know, they won the Olivier Award, they won the Tony. Um, as the years went went on, uh, we had the original Oscar-winning designers, and they brought in the costumes that Terence Stamp had worn in the film for me. And now he was thin as a rake. He was like built like a pencil. And I I was quite um, Rubenesque, I suppose, um, zaftig um, at the time. And Lizzie, the designer, looked at me and she went, hmm, we're going to start again. I'm going to turn you into Rita Hayworth. And she designed an entirely new set of costumes for me all based around leopard skin and uh so that she figured that Bernadette would have um gotten her sense of style from the movies which was sort of how I was playing Uh, you know I felt that Bernadette would have you know grown up watching Eva and um Greer Garson and all those sort of people and that's who she patterned herself on and that was that that was the um that was the key to the role for me um i always felt that that the Terence stamp brought a, a sort of a glumness to the part mm-hmm. and when i met him i heard him say to an interviewer i wanted to pay, play the pain of, a, of somebody trapped in the wrong body and that that's absolutely valid you know and it was a, it was a, a wonderful performance but i figured having grown up as i said around all those women they were big stars at the time in the 60s in, uh, at Lay Girls. They were the talk of the town. They were in all the papers and um, they were leading very glamorous lives to an extent. You know, they were, they were c- celebrities and they were drinking champagne every night. It was, and I thought, you know, she, she was actually quite a happy dame in, in her day was Bernadette. It's just now she's fallen on hard times and it's all behind her and she's getting old and she's lost her boyfriend at the top of the show. But she is used to to being a leading lady, to being a glamorous star. So that was the aspect of, of the part that that I played up. Um, so we we did the show. It took us to New Zealand and then suddenly I heard they're doing a production in London and they came to me and they said we we are going to do it with an English cast but would you be interested in doing it? Well would I be interested but again I had to sit and wait while Actors Equity over there they went through all the people and Michael Crawford auditioned he got into the full drag and did the whole thing and they went out to his house and I was later told that you have never seen a plainer a woman in your life. They said he, he was not pretty when he, when he put it all on. And they were apparently as they were driving away from his house and they were saying, you know, oh, my God, you know, he <laughs> there was not a good look. And somebody's phone rang and uh, they, they said, he said, come back, come back. I found another wig <laughs> and they said, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, Sir Ian McKellen was was interested in playing the role at one point. Um, anyway, long story short, uh, I I got it, and um, so I was the the only Aussie that went over, and that was that was very exciting. I loved living in London, um, and uh, but I I was not entirely happy with the show. Um, I felt that they never really struck the right chord with it and i think the problem was that they're very used to panto and pantomime over there um which which is a tradition every christmas um which is all very big and playing to the audience and and um if you don't play priscilla very real underneath all that mad costuming and glitter and campery and disco, if those three central characters aren't really played very truthfully, there's no heart to it. There's, there's, there's no sort of underpinning to it. Um, it, it can all just very easily become frippery. And, um, I never felt that they really found that truth in London. So, um, there was, that directorial eye that, that, you know, gets me in trouble every time. I was very grumpy um, a lot of the time with with what I felt was um, uh, there was a lot of clowning around on stage, not taking it Mm -hmm. seriously. And the other thing that bugged me about London was the first question they asked me was, um, so what shows are you going to take off? And I said, Oh, I, I never call out. I said, I, I do every single performance. And they said, Oh, no, you, you have to miss 28 performances a year here as part of the um, because we don't pay holiday pay. So you've actually got to miss 28 performances. Well, I was outraged. And I, I remember going home after the first day of rehearsal and saying to my partner, you know, they want me to take four weeks off in the year, you know, I never go off. I am a professional, blah, blah, blah. And I'm ranting and raving, and my partner very quietly said, we've never been to Paris. (laughs) And I thought, right, so we immediately booked um, four separate holidays of a week each during the course of the year. We went to Edinburgh and we went to Paris and we went to New York. So yeah, I just had to bite the bullet and do it. So anyway, I played my year with the show. Um, I got nominated for the Olivier Award, which was a great a great privilege um and then i gave my notice and they wanted everybody to stay um and i thought no i'm i'm really not happy and i i felt i was bringing the company down yeah so i thought it's time for me to leave And um, I immediately got a call from the producers, the Australian producer and and Simon, the director in Australia, and they were very, very upset that I was leaving, but they understood. And then they said, but will you come to Broadway? Well, you would have knocked me over with a feather. I didn't even know that that was in the offing. And I said, well, uh, yeah, yeah. And they said, well, they said, you know, you could take a, a couple of months off. And then they said, but again, we've, we've got to clear it with equity in America. And so again, the waiting game, I had to wait and until they, they got permission to, to get me in. I later found out they had Brent Barrett up their sleeve uh-huh. um, in case, in case um, I couldn't do it, but um, they got permission to use me. And uh, suddenly I, I was in a Broadway show playing the lead yes. in, a, in a Broadway show. Um, and it, it was sort of historical because I was the first Australian to play the lead in a Broadway show in a role that he had created in Australia because even though Hugh had done Boy From Oz, he didn't do it in Australia. It was somebody else. And um, a, a wonderful Australian performer named Todd McKenney. And I thought that, that I was going to go the way of Todd, that, you know, they're all going to say, yes, thank you for your service, but we're going to get somebody more famous. And um, to, to the eternal credit of our director, Simon, and the Australian director, um, uh, the Australian producer, Gary, um, and the Australian production team, uh, they stood by me. They stood by me the entire way. And, um, and again, when we came to New York, uh, I was still considered part of the production team, you know, whenever there would be a script meeting, they'd say, we're going over to Bond 45 for lunch, you know, you come. <laughs> and uh, so I, there was always that sense that I was part of the package, which was um, was very thrilling. Um, it was interesting when, when we did come to America, we we'd sort of learned our lesson that we'd, we'd got frightened of all the Australianness of the show in London and we allowed a lot of English references to, to creep into the show. That was one of the, one of the reasons why I wasn't happy. Um, like at one point, the Queen walked across the desert uh, in London with a corgi and yeah. I went, no, you know, it's a cheap laugh, but what is the Queen doing? in the outback of Australia um, and there, there were references to English TV personalities thrown in and all that and I thought no, no 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 we're 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 not trusting our convictions you know so we sort of when we came to New York we went let's have the courage of you know we will bring the audience to us I, I kept saying you know when Billy Elliot came to Australia we didn't soften those accents. We didn't change the references to make it easier for Australians to understand. We made Australians do the work until their ears clicked into those accents with Billy Elliot, you know. So let's, we will do the same in America. So we sort of stuck to our guns. And um, the producers, I think, in America were a bit bit frightened and uh, they, they kept bringing in all these American writers um, and so we, we'd get these pages would arrive, uh, that really weren't appropriate. Uh, they were, they were good writers, so, you know, but, um, we, we, we throw them away and say, no, we're sticking with what we've got. And, um, then suddenly Jerry Mitchell was there.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: And Jerry Mitchell got the credit of production supervisor and it was like, really what's jerry you know i mean um now the sad thing was that our choreographer ross had died in the interim he died after the london production so he never got to to come to new york but his assistant who had been there all the way um andrew halsworth he he came so suddenly it was like suddenly there's jerry mitchell in the room and uh, jerry never seemed to be doing anything jerry was probably in a lot of meetings uh but in the rehearsals jerry was just sitting there and then Uh, suddenly one day now one of my big problems with the show was that i never had my own number i never had a big number of my own um i had my little section of macarthur park which in the second act which i incidentally had brought into the show i found mm -hmm. that during the workshop um it, it replaced a speech that i didn't think worked and the, the the big chorus of MacArthur Park was in with the dancing cupcakes, but there was that middle verse of um, there will be another song for me and I will sing it that we weren't using. And I suddenly thought, ooh, that, that can be Bernadette's song. And I, I brought it in and I sprung it on them. I didn't tell them I was going to do it. I worked it out with Spud, the musical director beforehand, and I said, when I get to that moment where I usually do the speech, hit it, you know, and I, I did the song and they said, yes, keep it. So that that was my only real number in the show. And then suddenly one day we were doing, in rehearsal, the flashback, um, the Fine Romance number where young Bernadette appears and it's it's a flashback to lay girls with all the dancers on a big staircase. And suddenly Jerry said, I'd like to work on this number and I want to incorporate Tony into it more because I was just sitting on a chair like, you know, it was all happening in my head. And so, for one glorious rehearsal, Jerry choreographed a number on me and made me the centerpiece of it. And I was floating on air and I went home. And I'm ashamed to say that I said to Tony, my partner, I think this number could be my Tony nomination. I said, I've suddenly got a big number in the show. And I was jumping up and down. And I went in the next day. And Simon cut it, oh. and he said, uh, "I I don't think it's right." He said, uh, "I think I think Bernadette should stay in the chair, and that it, it should all be the young, the young thing." So I was heartbroken, and Jerry pretty much washed his hands of the project as of that moment. Yeah. I saw him go, "Okay, if you don't want my input." Um, i'll I'll have the credit on the program and I will take my weekly royalty and I won't do anything And that's sort of what he did and it was interesting that later down the track um he he really never did sort of contribute anything that we saw he may well have done in the meetings, but he never got up on the floor again after that. And uh, later in the run, when we were asked to do the Macy's Thanksgiving parade, Jerry was brought in to stage our number. And he gave a little speech beforehand and he said, I just want to tell you that this isn't my show. This isn't necessarily the way I would have staged the show. It's not necessarily the way I would have cast the show, Um, but they brought me in to do this number. And um, so I, I put something together and I'll do this and uh, I then I'll leave you to it it was sort of a weird thing to say so I felt that he never really felt it was his project but we had Jerry Mitchell you know as production supervisor on the program uh, so yes it but new york was a joy an absolute joy for me from start to finish and uh, the the producers were very kind to me and uh, yeah, I, I could talk for hours about the entire New York experience. I mean, the the whole thing of when you come to Broadway from somewhere else, and people believe in you, and they trust you, and they they respect your talent and what you've done. the the welcome that you are given, the the open arms. you are given and of course i suddenly realized for the first time what a billion dollar industry theater is in new york so it's very important to them and i come from a country where theater ain't that important and there's not that much respect for it you know there's more respect for football in australia than there so suddenly to come where we were really treated as the artists that we are you know and um it, I I was floating on a cloud for the entire 525 performances that we did um, on on Broadway, and and to to be able to do things like um, uh, the the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade and and oh um, all, all those those things that are attended, you know the Gypsy of the Year and, and and be invited to do Broadway backwards and and then then all those award things I got nominated for every award, so there were all those lunches that you have to go to. Um, And that was very traumatic for me, for somebody who, uh, as I said, suffers greatly from imposter syndrome, Um, to suddenly have to turn up and meet the press all the time. I I was a wreck a lot of the time. I found out that's a very common thing. I was crying all the time. but uh, so there was the, the drama league and the drama desk and and the art critic circle award and and the, the Tony award and then to get the theater world award on top of everything else um, and uh, the, the I, I went to the Tony luncheon which was really the only one that I really enjoyed because there's no press there and it's just all the nominees in one room and so you actually get to, to talk to all the other people and you're sitting at a table with all the other nominees and and you're given your your plaque, your your certificate with your official nomination, and I walked in and the first person I saw was Beth Level and who I had not met, and she was standing alone in the foyer and I said I have to tell you something, I said uh, I saw Forty Second Street on Broadway in its final months and I said and you were playing Anytime Annie, and this is the original production and uh, in nineteen eighty eight, and I said and you were just incredible. And I said, and then years later, um, I was I saw my first IMAX film. You know those big IMAX cinemas? Yeah. And there was a there was a, a movie about New York in the twenties or the thirties. And there was a scene in it where they did the whole opening of Crazy for You, the I Can't Be Bothered Now number. And I said, and I was sitting in Melbourne, Australia, with my big IMAX glasses on. And I said, and the camera pan down the line of all the chorus girls in I Can't Be Bothered Now. I said, and there you were. And I said, and I screamed in this this theater, there's that girl. (laughs) Um, Well, she laughed and she laughed. And I said, so here I am meeting you. Well, on the days of, on the actual day of the Tony Awards, which was very traumatic because we had to go in and we had to rehearse our number. And then they said to me, your category is going to be immediately after the number. And I said, oh, okay, well, I was in full drag for the, for the number. And they said, there's going to be a commercial break. They said, you have four minutes to get out of your makeup and your costume and get back into a dinner suit and get back into the audience. I said, oh, I said, I've seen the Tony Awards. I know that I can stand in the wings. I said, I'm not going to win. I said, there's no way I'm going to win. I said, because last year it was Douglas Hodge for a drag performance and the year before it had been for a drag performance. I said, they're not going to give it to a guy in a dress three years running. And, And also I was up against josh gad and andrew rannells for mormon joshua, joshua um, for, andrew, for, for uh, Scottsboro boys and uh for, for uh, norbert norbert leah oh. for Cashmere me if you can so i i i absolutely had no illusions about winning it i said just let me stand in the wings and nod and smile when they say my name and i said and then somebody else will win the award oh no you have to get out of your makeup and you have to get so they made me practice the change all afternoon with a stopwatch and there was a team of dresses around me wiping the makeup off my face and and ripping wigs off and putting me into the suit and then I had to run down the steps and then run into the audience and then they'd go no that was four minutes 50 seconds you've got to cut 20 seconds so then I had to put all the makeup back on <laughs> and put the wig back on and the dress and then do it all again I I was going this I was supposed to be having a good time today and I was a nervous wreck. Then the management wouldn't supply a car for me. Now, I I was living down on East 12th Street and the show was at the Beacon Theatre way uptown. And management said, no, 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 he can get the subway. And Uh, the cast, led by darling Will Swenson and, and Nick Adams and the rest of the cast said, if you don't give Tony Sheldon the car, to go to the tony awards where he's nominated for the best actor in a musical they said we will all take up a collection and get him one and we'll tell the press and then suddenly i was informed there would be a car picking me up at four o'clock that afternoon so um so yes i'm in the car absolute nervous gibbering wreck um my auntie helen Reddy flew in um to be to be my date and my partner tony was there And I was physically shaking and I get out of the car and who is the first person I see? Beth Level. And she saw me and she said, you're coming with me. And she took my hand and she said something that made me laugh. She said, the second nomination is easier. Well, I laughed. I thought as if I'm ever going to get a second nomination, but I I loved her faith in me. And she walked me down the red carpet. She held my hand and she was with me for every interview. And she just looked after me the whole way down the red carpet. And um, then we got to the end and she just let me go. And she went, now you're on your own kid. And I I have never forgotten her kindness. She got me through that. And then there, there I was suddenly sitting in the theater, which made me laugh because it was, what the audience doesn't see, you know, there's cables, camera cables everywhere on the floor. It's a wonder people do not break their necks, you know, and also they're constantly coming to get people out of the audience to get you backstage, like a full segment before you're required. And the second, so you're sitting there and you're going, oh, I'm sitting behind Angela Lansbury. But then somebody comes and whispers in her ear and she's gone and somebody else is in her seat. And there's seat warmers being moved around. It's like a chess game all night. So you're constantly seeing new people sitting in front of you. To, oh, now there's Christian Chen sitting in front of me. So um, that that was all very amusing. But um, uh, as I said, you know, you, you, you're in another world when you're sitting in the audience. You, you're not paying attention to anything, really. It's all just going past you in a blur while you wait for your category. And it's all well and good to say I'm not going to win it. But for that split second before they call the name. You go, please let it be me, because you realise that all your friends in Australia are watching. <laughs> you just want to do it for them more than anything. And also, you realise that the whole thing is about marketing. It's not about whether yours is the best performance. It's, it's a marketing tool for the show. And uh, indeed, I was approached before the, the nominations were announced. Uh, and asked if I would consider going into the supporting actor category um, because they felt there was a better chance of me winning. And I said, I don't think I'm going to win either way, no matter what category you put me in. And I said, and I would rather, just for my own personal satisfaction, I would like it to go down in history that I was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical for a leading role. That that is what I will take away from this experience. And so I said, no, put, put me in next to the Mormon boys. I'm 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 happy for that. So you realize how political it is, you know, that they actually come and ask you what category you want to be nominated in. So yes, that 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 that's that story.
0: <laughs> yes. And I I know you were mentioning it even with the rehearsal for the Tony awards but I'm wondering what it was like to have to get in full drag for 2006 performances overall it, it
1: was it was just part of the territory really mm-hmm. um when when you're taking it on you realize that's the deal um the the whole the whole drag experience was weird because I was the only person in the original Australian production who didn't audition in drag Uh, everybody else was made to drag up for their callback to see how they looked but because i had done the workshop and then went through that long waiting period where everybody else auditioned for my role um, i think they just thought it was cruelty to ask me to do it so i went through the entire rehearsal process without anybody seeing what i was going to look like and I didn't know what I was going to look like. And we did a couple of wig tests for different colours and things like that. And then they put me into the outfit. And I remember I looked ridiculous the first time they put me into the outfit. They they overcompensated and I had enormous hips and enormous breasts. And I looked like Passionella in the apple tree. I mean, it was I looked like a cartoon. And every time I walked on stage, everybody just laughed. And at the tech rehearsal, I let that go for three days until I finally marched into the auditorium and confronted the production team and said, I demand a breast reduction. And they they slimmed me down to more uh, logical proportions. But I was very lucky that when I put on the makeup and the wig, I looked exactly like my mother and who was a very, very pretty woman and this the palpable sigh of relief that went through the entire company when i first came out as bernadette in australia um and uh then as the show went on with each country we we refined the look and so by the time i got to new york the wigs got prettier the makeup got softer Um, so it was just a thing that i always knew that i had to be in the theater three hours before the show at every performance, which was really tough, especially on a matinee day. Um, um, that uh, For a two o'clock show, I, I had to be in the theatre at 11. Um, and, and otherwise, I was in there at five every single day. So your entire day was geared to you had to eat your dinner at four and then you were in there at five. And there was a reason for that, was that I wanted to be ready completely ready by the half hour so that I could go and see everybody in the show because I was leading the show um, I felt it was really important that I not be stuck in the dressing room all night getting ready I wanted to make contact with everybody the whole time and Um, I'm so glad I did because um, pretty much all those people have stayed in my life through um, the years Uh, there was a wonderful thing about the Australian company that I I didn't know who who the cast was going to be until the first day of rehearsal. And with the exception of two people, I knew everybody. I had worked with everybody. I had taught them at drama school. I'd done shows with them. Uh, So I was in a family to start with. Um, It was harder than in England and America because I was walking into a completely new cast of people who I'd never met and Um, it was difficult in London for some reason I just didn't make the personal connections with people in London and I think it's because of that thing of everybody was always off having holidays that that every time you'd come into the theatre there'd be different people on there'd be understudies on all the time and so I never never really connected as well as I would have liked in London but New York I made it an absolute point of visiting everybody, is spending as much time as I could with those people, um, and it's wonderful. They're all still my mates, and and I adore them. So yes, that 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 coming in every every night, get getting ready. I wanted to be as beautiful as I could be, and and I I just wanted to be in her mindset. You know, I I used to decorate the dressing room with sort of I made it like a showroom. Um, I had the Broadway theatre posters everywhere, and and uh, it was just glamorous. It was full of the leopard skin. People used to send me, as they do in Broadway and West End shows, people send you things, you know, toys and, and gifts. So, you know, the room was festooned with, with wonderful souvenirs. Um, um, it, it became my home away from home. It was wonderful. And then, of course, you get all the visitors who come. Yes, yes. And... Uh, and uh, Uh, in New York, you know, you, you, it's all these Broadway people are suddenly there. And um, extraordinary things like Cloris Leachman suddenly being there backstage one night. And uh, she, she grabbed me and hustled me into a, a room and said, there's something wrong with the back of your costume. There's, there's a lump, there's a lump in the back of your costume. And I said, it's, it's my mic pack. You know, I'd never met Cloris Leachman. And then there she is you know trying to work out where to put my mic pack it ruins the line because she's so beautiful and you don't want to ruin the line and then suddenly this young man ran into the room and started tickling her and she screamed and she ran away and suddenly there's Cloris Leachman being chased through the 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 corridors of the Palace Theatre and she disappeared and I thought I wonder who that was you know and I'm I'm asking around, and I said, Is that, was that one of the, the guys who works backstage? And nobody, nobody seemed to know. And then there was silence, and I didn't hear anything. And then about 20 minutes later, I went to another room. It was, it was between shows. And um, there she was talking to somebody else. And I went, oh, she's still here. So I went up to Clarice, and then I said, oh, I said, I just wanted to congratulate you on uh, your autobiography, which had just come out. I said, it's wonderful. She said, oh, thank you. I, I must read it. I said, but you wrote it. She said, no, no. She said, my husband wrote it. She said, I I, I haven't read it. Um, she said, but he thought I should write a book. So I said, well, if you, if you want to see a book, you should write it. And he did. And then suddenly this young man appeared again and started tickling her. And she screamed and off they went again. And I went, who is this person? And somebody said, oh, that's her son. They said he came to pick her up. And um, he decided instead he'd just chase her around the theatre. And so, it, you know, it was like, really? And then, of course, the other story, which I've told many times, was um, the, the matinee from hell when uh, everything went wrong and, you um, I, I missed all the my costume changes, and one of my costumes wasn't even there. And I, I fell over and cut cut all my legs, and it was like literally the worst the worst matinee ever. And it was uh, we, it was a day when we were collecting for Broadway cares, and uh, we we were auctioning off of a, a backstage visit, and suddenly somebody said eight eight hundred dollars or something, and we looked down and it was Shirley MacLaine. And I nearly died. I thought, why is Shirley MacLaine here on the worst performance I have ever given? Anyway, she came backstage and I I said, uh, I, I said, I'm so sorry. She said, you were fabulous. She said, I didn't notice anything was wrong. I said, why did you pay $800 to come back stage to a theater that you played famously, you know, Shirley MacLaine at the Palace? She said, I wanted to meet you. And she stood and held my hand backstage, and all she wanted to know was who was straight and who was gay. She just... And every time one of the guys was leaving the theatre, and she, I'd say, oh, please come and meet Miss McLean. And then as they'd walk away, she'd say, what about him? What about him? I'd say, he's straight. No. She'd say, yeah, he's straight, I'd say. And, uh, and then I said, do you, do you want to come and look at your old dressing room? She said, yeah, why not? And she came in and she said, so have you got the long run blues? I said, no. She was she was fascinated by the fact that I, I could do the same show for, you know, four years or whatever it was at that point, um, and and not get bored. Um so so that, you know, I I couldn't believe the sort of things that, you know, that these people who who were were coming back and, and asking to meet me and and I, I made some wonderful connections. You know, directors came and saw the show, who then later asked me to do stuff. And uh, I, I, made, I made a lot of friends. I mean, by by the time that show finished, and I decided to stay in America, I applied for my green card, which was an enormous process. Uh, but when I got my green card and decided to stay, uh, my my circle of friends at that time were, you know, Leroy Reams and Sondra Lee. And Donna McKechnie and Harvey Evans and Christine Andreas and um, Audra McDonald who was my landlady, eventually Audra and Will. uh, I was living in their basement. They were they were so kind to me, Audra and Will. Um, You know, these were the people that you know I had worshipped from afar all my life, and suddenly these were the people I was going out to dinner with every night. You know, calling and saying, you know, do you want to go and See a show, so uh, it 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 was a remarkable time. Hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. And what would it be like to return to the show, or what was it like when you returned to the show?
1: I, I probably would have stayed with it anyway. Uh, the only reason we closed because we weren't doing badly; we were still playing like sixty-five percent. And, but the, it, as most theatres do, they've got the option if they see another show circling the theatre uh, and Annie was circling the theatre um, and uh, they they took us off. And it was sort of weird because there was really no reason to take us off. And interestingly, the, the theatre owners said years down the track, we made a big mistake because Annie didn't do as well as they They thought they would. Um, So I I would happily have stayed with it, had it kept going. And I never did miss a performance on Broadway. And one one of the ushers said to me on the closing night, don't think we didn't notice. Um, So I was very, very proud of that, that I I played every single performance at the Palace. But Um, when it it finished, I went, okay, it's time to put it to bed. And there was interest to do it in Paris. Um, There was an entrepreneur from Paris who wanted to do it at uh, the Moulin Rouge I think and he wanted to do it in French and the Australian producer said to me he's fallen in love with you and he wants you to do it in French and I said all right I'll learn I will learn French to do Bernadette at the Moulin Rouge are you kidding me Um, unfortunately that that didn't happen for many many years and when it did happen it 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 they did their own production and it looked pretty weird, um, but they did it with, with an entirely French cast. But then in 2017, I got a call from Australia and they said, we're going to do the 10th anniversary production. Well, it was actually the 12th anniversary production. It had been 12 years since I'd first done it. And I, I didn't want anybody else to play the role in Australia. It was pride. It was, you know... if. If you're going to do it, I want to be the one up there doing it, you know, and it felt like, you know, a new generation of people were going to see me do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, my, my greatest concern was would I still be fit enough to do it? Would I still be able to dance it? Um, and would I still look all right? Uh, so I, I think I got away with it. I look at the pictures now, two, two three years down the track, and go, oh, I was <laughs> cut, cutting it fine there. Um, but I was told I still looked still looked pretty from out front Um, and uh i i was really happy it was a terrific company it was a really good cast and we continued to refine the show you know um we had we had the original production team and again um i was writing lines on scraps of paper and slipping them to the director and saying why don't they say this yeah okay that's going in the show um so i was you know again i was i was still a part of it um but uh a terrible thing happened. I got I got injured. Um, I, I I had an accident backstage where I ran full belt um, into a, into the, the proscenium arch in a blackout um, during the technical rehearsal, and I smashed my my breastbone. Oh. And uh, I was lucky I didn't hit hit my head. Um, but I, I ended up in, in hospital that night, you know, getting x-rayed and uh, it it then brought on bronchitis and pneumonia um, because uh, I couldn't uh, cough because of the, the pain. And I, it, I was sort of behind the eight ball for the entire run. And then I had another fall uh, during a costume change where I fell on my, my coccyx. And um, and I I didn't realize I'd injured myself and I kept performing until I was practically crippled. And that meant that when we went on tour, I I actually m- missed a large section of the tour. And a um, journalist wrote an article about me in Adelaide saying how unprofessional I was to not be doing all the performances. And he didn't understand that I was actually crippled. And that I there was no way I could do that. I couldn't walk properly, let alone do those dance numbers. And I didn't want to compromise the show, you know, by going on and not doing the performance that I normally gave. So I I played opening night, but then I went off for three performances. And he he wrote a really damning editorial in this newspaper um saying that I I did not deserve to be called a star. Oh and uh carol channing never missed a show and ethel merman never missed a show and hugh jackman never missed you know well you can argue that till you blew in the face but the damage was done you know so it's it's sort of tarnished the experience for me um with the show uh but i'm 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 very happy that, that I was able to do it again and I got to 2006 performances which had a nice sort of circular thing because 2006 was the year that I started doing the show Um, and I got to work with all those casts and all those brilliant people down the line and um it, it totally changed my life you know who had it not been for Priscilla who knows what would have happened but I certainly wouldn't have seen the world and lived in America for eight years and done all those other shows. Hmm.
0: Yes, yes. And so I would love to actually ask you about the other Broadway show that you did, which was Amelie, and how that began for you?
1: Um, That uh, I think I was just asked. I was invited to do that. Um, I only auditioned for, like, two shows when I was over there. I auditioned for Dolly. At Goodsby, which I got, which I was thrilled about. And I auditioned for my Fair Lady at the Guthrie um, for Pickering. And as soon as I walked in, Joe Dowling, the director, said, I saw you do dirty rotten scoundrels in Sydney. So it was like, Oh <laughs> what what were the odds of that that I, you know, to 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 do a show in Minneapolis? And the guy had seen me play that fabulous part in Sydney. Um but otherwise I got offered everything by people, which was wonderful. Um, So Kathleen Marshall was a great supporter of me and um, Marshall Milgram Dodge was a great supporter of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I had worked with Sam Pinkleton, who was the choreographer of Amelie. So I'm assuming that might have been my in there. Uh, But Pam McKinnon was the director and um, yes, I was brought in for the season um, at Berkeley, Berkeley Rep um, in San Francisco and uh, that was when Samantha Barks was playing the part and I loved the score as soon as I heard it and I I really liked my part, The Glass Man and I realised it was going to be sort of a very experimental staging. Um, Sam had us working on the opening number all the time, every day and there were all these variations. There was a lot of, there was a lot of improvisational exercises. And uh, so I thought, oh, what have I got myself into here? It was, it was a very unusual process. Um, but it was a completely unknown quantity. Uh, it seemed that the composer was going to be the muscle in the room. Um, it seemed that he, he, he was going to be the loudest voice which I thought was interesting because he had never really done a a musical before. He'd written stuff for the New York Shakespeare Festival. And uh, so we were told it wasn't going to sound French. And, uh, you know, there, there, there was sort of a lot of ground rules that, that we were told. Um, so, you know, there, there's always a, every musical has that Roshaman thing of of every creative person in the room has their own version of what happened to the show. So I can only speak to, what we saw in the rehearsal room and uh, what we saw was endless rehearsing of this opening number of which we did something like 11 versions completely different uh with puppets and with uh you know dancing and without dancing and you know it 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 became this thing that we go in every day and just do this opening number and Um, we opened it at berkeley and we knew that it was problematic um but we we knew we had this sort of very tiny jewel of a show and something very interesting happened that the the artistic director tony to i think his name was of of berkeley called us all together towards the end of the run and asked us what we thought was wrong with the show which I'd, i'd never been in that situation where they asked the cast well of course a lot of people said well my part's not big enough you know (laughs) that that was fairly useless Um, (laughs) um, and then a year went by and I'm told we're going to do it at the Amundsen in LA and this time it's Philippa Sue who had done one of the workshops but of course she just was hot off Hamilton and hot off her Tony nomination so we went oh okay and suddenly four people had been released from the show and been replaced so that was weird because uh, i thought everybody had been lovely i didn't understand why suddenly we had new people and we had a few new songs but everything else was basically the same so i thought okay so we go back into the rehearsal room and sure enough we're doing that opening number again and it becomes all about this opening number well of course we it became this joke and I thought, yeah, okay, it seemed to be basically still the same show, as far as I could tell, from the little flawed jewel that we had in San Francisco. Um, but I thought, okay, I've, I've you know, I, I'd enjoy doing a show at the Armisen. Um, and it was Christmas in L.A. And so we're rehearsing in New York, and suddenly one day there's Jordan Roth, who walked in and said, um, I'm thrilled to announce that I'm bringing you into town to the Walter Kerr Theatre. And he gave this speech about, you know, I only want to bring shows in that are precious jewels and that they're, they're specially suited to my theatre. And, and this this show is, is, a, is a Walter Kerr show and all that. And I remember standing and looking at everybody and thinking, you're all mad. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we bringing this into New York? um it i just you know much fond as i was of it i just thought we're going to get killed but i kept my, my 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 qualms to myself because at the time um, donald trump had just been elected and we had more serious things to worry about and adam chandler barat had us marching you know in times square and and you know we 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 were trying to save the country rather than worrying about our little show um so we we go to LA and and we we did the show and then I I really got nervous and I I I think I had a bit of survivor guilt about why I hadn't been fired along with everybody else because I thought I'm really not that good in this show and I'm not bringing anything to the show that anybody else wouldn't bring you know any other character actor of my age And I felt that they'd had to change. They rewrote my song and I felt it was because I wasn't singing the the original one well enough because it was too high. And (laughs) I suddenly just thought, yeah, I don't know. And I also, I got an offer to do um, Big River at Encores, uh, which was an outright offer to play um, the king, uh, which I got really excited about. And uh, it was very different for me to do a role like that. And I thought it would be a really good showcase, and I'd had a fabulous experience with the bandwagon at Encore's, um, so I thought, yeah, I'm just going to do Big River. And so I gave my notice in LA. Uh, I said I really don't want to come into New York with this show. To, to my astonishment, they really fought for me. The producers really fought, and and Pam McKinnon. It was sort of like, what can what can we do for you to make this easier for you? So. I thought, well, they obviously value me as a as a member of this company. Um, so i I agreed to do it because um they said we will open the week, the week after uh, Big River finishes. And after much negotiating, um i I signed on to do Amelie in New York. and then no sooner had we arrived back in New York, and two days before I was due to start rehearsing Big River, the Amelie people said, oh no, you can't do Big River. We, we need you in rehearsal in case there are any changes. And I thought I'm being punished.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so of course, to the great inconvenience of the Encores people, um, I was pulled on the day of their first rehearsal. I was pulled out of Big River and uh, thank God they found David Pitu who came in and replaced me at you know an hour's notice? Uh, but I, I was very sad and not a little angry. And uh, so there we are with our precious flawed jewel. At the Walter Kerr, I was sharing um, a, a dressing room with one of the actors, and I remember he came in with all this makeup and everything, and I I had a hairbrush and a bottle of eye drops. <laughs> And he said, you travel light. And I said, well, I think we're only going to be here for about six weeks. And his jaw dropped. He went, Tony, how can you say that? You know, you're on Broadway. I said, I'm, I, I just don't have a good feeling about this. And um, yeah, you know, it, the, what happened is history. We, we got trounced uh, by the press. And I, I just, I don't know what happened, I don't know because I was not privy to the production meetings. Uh, but we ran six weeks to the day and uh, it was weird because I remember that between between shows one Saturday I went to have dinner and I was walking back to the theatre and I was walking towards that Amelie poster that had the twinkling lights on the Walter Kerr marquee. And I thought, I'm not happy and I don't understand. I'm on Broadway and this should be the height of my career. And I'm dragging my feet to this theatre. I I used to sneak out the back way every night. I wouldn't come out the stage door and meet the fans. There was something, something happened to me in my soul. So I wasn't sad to, to see it go. Of course, the upshot was the show then went to, to Europe in different productions and has been a massive success oh. and uh, they found a way to do it and they 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 did it with the, the 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 cast playing the instruments and they 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 got that french quirkiness from the film that i think would, that everybody missed from our production and uh, i am so glad for for the authors um that uh the the jewel, they, they, they solved it, but it was interesting. It was the beginning of the end of something for me, because then I came back and, and um, did Priscilla and then had all those injuries. And then um, because Jack O'Brien was, was coming out to do Charlie in the Chocolate Factory out here, uh, I stayed on for another year and did Charlie and that brought its own problems. And I decided to quit the business after Charlie and uh, again uh, i gave my notice at the end of my year and i was going to come back to america and pack up my stuff and COVID hit oh. and i wasn't allowed to leave the country uh, I, I paid for my my ticket and everything and uh that was uh 18 months ago and i'm still not allowed to leave the country so yeah. i've i've officially closed the chapter okay. on uh, on america which yeah. is sort of sort of sad but it, it felt like it was the right time because if I wasn't enjoying being on Broadway, well, then what was the point?
0: Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask you about uh, Cleopatra. Oh,
1: maybe. oh, look, I cannot tell you that 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 was the high point. That and the bandwagon. Um, yeah. We'll come back to the bandwagon. I, I had Charles. Charles became. A sort of a fan. And I, I he came and saw the show and was so lovely to me. Well, of course, I worshipped Charles Bush. Mm-hmm. And um I had luck, lucked out one, one visit to New York where he was doing The Lady in Question. And it was his final week. And Vampire Lesbians of Sodom was still running like it was in its millionth year off Broadway. And that same week that I was in New York, he went back into Vampire Lesbians. So I got to see him in two of his shows in the same week. And um, I went out and bought all the copies of all his plays and Uh, and read them. And uh, I I absolutely just thought he was a a genius, still do. And uh, suddenly uh, he invited me to one of his Christmas parties. So there I was in his apartment and um, that was where I met David Staller. That was my introduction to Project Shaw. Um, Sondra, Darling Sondra Lee, um, various people uh, through through Charles. And we, um, we used to just socialise. We'd go out to dinner uh, or we'd go out to the theatre. I took him to, see, uh, to a museum once to see Elaine Stritch speak. It was her last visit in New York. So we were just sort of buddies. And um, I was out of town doing... Camelot or something and he rang me and he said I'm I'm doing I'm writing a play I'm writing Cleopatra for myself and he said I'm writing three roles specifically for you (laughs) well knock me over with a feather Charles Bush is inviting me to join his repertory company you know I couldn't believe it and he said you know Andy Halliday is going to be in it and uh Jennifer Cody's going to be in it and and all all these people who who I'd seen in the Divine sister which was his last big hit um he said I'm I'm sending you a script so I he he'd, he'd written me Julius Caesar to play opposite him and then to play Julius Caesar's wife so he'd written me a drag role to be on stage in drag opposite Charles Bush I mean whoa um and then, this uh, this this third role, who was sort of a villain, and um, knowing Charles's sensibility about you know everything was sort of inspired by Hollywood and all his characterizations were inspired by Hollywood. So I thought, all right, well I'll I'll do the same thing. I'll find a way in sort of. And so I decided I was going to play Julius Caesar as Robert Preston. Um, I can't remember with Calpurnia, but the third one I thought I, I'd play him as Addison DeWitt from All About Eve. I'll play him as George Sanders. And so I, I and I was going to arrive, I was going to finish this show that I was doing in Houston, and I was going to arrive and go almost immediately into rehearsal for Cleopatra. Anyway, suddenly, on my last day in Houston, Charles said, I've decided to rewrite your roles. Um, he said, um, the third one, I think um, it needs to be funnier. He said, so I'm sending you the new script. So I read the new script on the plane back to New York, well, I was devastated because he'd suddenly turned my George Sanders role into a sort of a, a comedy death man. And it was all, hey, hey, speak up, speak up. And, you know, they say, you know, we want you to go to the bar. What? You want me to get in a car? What? What? And I thought, this is old, terrible vaudeville shtick. And I was mortified. And I thought, I can't do this. This is terrible. I'll, I'll you know... They'll throw tomatoes at me, and I—I I was shaking with terror. And I—I I arrived back in New York and I put down my luggage. And before I even turned on the lights, I called the director Carl Andrus and I said, "I'm going to have to resign from your show." Well, Charles, Carl went, "What?" And I said, "Charles has rewritten one of the, the 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 characters, and I I cannot, in all conscience, do it. I think it's terrible. I said, I think he's ruined his play now." <laughs> who is this upstart Aussie who has been offered this once in a lifetime opportunity telling Charles Bush how to write his play. But I felt that strongly about it that I, I actually said, you'll have to get somebody else because I cannot play that material. Well, of course, two seconds after I'd hung up, Carl had rung Charles and Charles rang me and he said, well, I'll I'll go back to the original. And he said, I was trying to do you a favour, kid. He said, I thought, I thought, Thought it wasn't funny enough, and that I'd give you some laughs. I said, "Trust me on this." I said, "I think I know what I'm doing with what you wrote," and um, I and I, I I spouted off some pretentious blah blah about how the third character had to be played straight because it it contained all the the classical information of the plot, and I said, "You've got to you've got to make certain points about." characters otherwise the audience won't understand the plot and i said and if you put all these jokes in that's just cheap laughs and you're doing a disservice to your play so thank thank the lord i went in and did what i wanted and everybody screamed with laughter when i did the george sanders voice and uh it it stayed um and so i i sort of i'd earned my way into the company it it was such a joy and to see how hard everybody worked and how seriously everybody took that material um, and you know Charles was very nervous himself about his own performance he, uh, he uh, so he, he 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 really had a lot of respect for me and I had a lot of respect for him and uh, he, he always said to me you know how he, he felt Elevated when when we were working together, it, I, I I felt so privileged to to be a part of that team. And uh, then we did. Um, I mean that that was a that was another case of everybody in in New York turns up to see a Charles Bush show. You know you every night you come off and there's Lee Grant and there's Tommy Tune and the the thing that made me laugh was Beth Midler came, mm-hmm. who of course had produced Priscilla. And um, she had no idea who I was. Absolutely no idea who I was. She was introduced to me after the show. She said, how do you do? You know, oh, you're Australian. I said, yes, I was in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. She said, oh, really, what did you play? And her daughter was standing next to her, and she said, he was Bernadette, mom. Oh, really? I thought, hmm, just shows how much attention Bette was paying. But. Yes, yeah, so so you know, you, you knew when you were in a Charles Bush play that you were the talk of the town. but we we did four weeks down down off Broadway. Uh, we all did it for nothing. you know, you you didn't get paid. you did it for the love of the the gig. And Charles didn't want to take it on. It was in, he didn't want to transfer it anywhere. Um, which we were sort of really surprised, but he he, I think he just felt it wasn't one of his better ones. Um, it was published. And at one point, um, he was working with a friend who I think he's still working with, who was doing wonderful, putting Um, photographs behind him of like um, 1920 silent film pictures and then was putting our production shots in front of it. And Charles had the idea of of doing a whole movie of, of Cleopatra like it was a silent film against these wonderful classical uh, ancient Egyptian backgrounds. And uh, we were going to film it with the original cast, but nothing came of that. But then I got to do Red Scare at Sunset for a benefit. And uh, he he invited me to play two of the roles in that. And uh, suddenly there was Julie Halston and and, uh, uh, June Gable. And uh, so so there was some more wonderful uh, originals. Um, David Pitt who was in that as well. And we did that as a one-nighter, and he said to me, "I'd like to do the, to do a revival of this next year. Would you Would you do it with me?" Um, so I said, "Yeah." And then he wrote a part for me in uh, in his latest yeah, one, which I I never got to do because I was in Australia. He said to me, "Well, I can't I can't hold on, I can't wait for <laughs> you." That that did break my heart that I didn't get to. <laughs> to create a scene a, a, because I, I felt that I really had been welcomed into the, into the company. And I did a couple of other things. We did a play reading in his apartment of, uh, uh, of, of an old play called the second Mrs. Tanqueray that he was interested he was considering doing, um, playing the, uh, the female lead of that. And, um, so I, I, I was going to be involved in that if that went ahead. So yes, to, to, just to have the privilege of Charles's friendship is enough but to have had that brief shining moment as part of, to have parts actually written for me by Charles Bush. Yeah, nothing beats that.
0: So I'd love to go back to the bandwagon, which you were mentioning you'd like to talk about.
1: Yes, yes. Um, That was a, um, I I walked past, I walked past city centre and saw the poster that they were doing the bandwagon and I saw all those names up on the list, and I saw Kathleen was directing it, and I'd done um, the Ever After workshops for Kathleen. They yeah. had been exciting in themselves, you know. She she just uh, asked me to come in, and will you play Leonardo da Vinci in Ever After? And I went, yeah, yeah, that'd be fabulous. And to walk in to a room, and then this was when I was still doing Priscilla, and uh, there was Sierra Bogus, and Stephen Pasquale, and Roger Reese, and Jessica Walter. And Terence Mann, I did. I ended up doing three of them, and you know, Lindsay Mendez, F, Jose Lana, F. Michael Haney, Judy Kay. At one point, was involved. Maren Mazzi was was in there at one point. Um, Jer- Jeremy Jordan, Matt Kavanagh. It was like the cream of show business was was yeah. there. And I and I thought, and I'm in the room with them. <laughs> you know, it was it was beyond my comprehension. So there, I thought. I thought, oh, you know, Kathleen's doing this one. I thought, oh, the bandwagon, you know, that, that wonderful Jack Buchanan part, I could have done that. I thought, oh, well, Roger Reese, you know, darling Roger Reese, who I adored and who was a fan of mine. He'd come and seen Priscilla in Australia and he'd introduced me to Ian McKellen because he was out there touring with Waiting Forgotto. And um, so I, I couldn't have been more, more thrilled. So one Friday night, I'm sitting in my apartment in Audra and Will's basement. And uh, I get a text from a friend of mine who'd been in Priscilla saying, bandwagon, woo, congratulations. (laughs) And I texted back, "Uh, I don't know what that means, but I'm not in the bandwagon. And I got the text back going, oops, I think I spoke too soon, but uh, just keep, keep your ear out. Well, of course. I thought, I don't know what's going on. What does this mean? What does this mean? And uh, it was two hours before I got a call from my agent and it was Friday night and my agent said, the bandwagon goes into rehearsals on Monday. Roger Reese is not well. And this was, of course, the beginning of the illness that took him from us. Mm -hmm. Uh, They said, and he doesn't feel that he's going to be up to doing the part. Kathleen has asked, can you come in on Monday? And do the thing. And he said, um, the billing is going to be the same, of course. Now Roger was getting third billing. So it was, so suddenly I I I'm sent the script and it's all different from the film. So suddenly I had Louisiana Hayride and I had Dancing in the Dark and I had I had all these numbers that the character didn't have in the film. And then they sent me the mock-up of the the poster that suddenly I was on. And it was Brian Stokes Mitchell, Tracy Ullman, Tony Sheldon. I was third bill. And then Michael McKean, Laura Osnes, Michael Barrett. So I thought, my God, you know, it was like, so I literally, I locked myself in my room. I went out and bought food and I locked myself in my flat and I did not leave for all of Friday night and Saturday and Sunday. And I learnt that show cold. And I just knew, you know, I had my work cut out for me. And sure enough, you know, with an encore show, you're up learning choreography within the first minute. And uh, again, you know, to be in the room with with all those people at the height of their their powers, I couldn't. Tracy Ullman, I have worshipped all my life, and what what uh, threw me was that she was so casual. She was constantly off chatting to everybody. It was like she was never paying attention to what was going on. And whenever it came time for her to do a scene, she'd be out of the room. And they, they everything had stopped dead, and they'd all had to go and look for Tracy, and then she'd come in, and sometimes she she'd come come on, and she'd be eating an apple, or she would you know have have some nuts, and it was all terribly casual. And took me a couple of days thinking, why isn't she as nervous as I am about you know we've got such a short time? And I suddenly realised, oh, this is how she does it in television, you know that the, obviously they. They just talk their way through it, and then on the taping day is when it all comes together. Well, I saw I saw Tracy look absolutely stupefied with terror when she realised we had we were going to hit her, an audience. You know, on the fifth day, she it was like she 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 actually hadn't prepared herself for it. And uh, I thought, yeah, yeah, this is this is a show. But she was wonderful. Of course, she was wonderful. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, I managed to pull it together. And there was one wonderful moment when I was saying to one of the production team, it might have been Todd Ellison, who was the musical director, and I said, I, I can't believe I got this gig. And he said, Let me let me let you into a secret. The Weislers, who were producing Bandwagon for encores, they had a list of names when Roger became unavailable, and they said these are the people who were considering to come in. And he said the one name that everybody on the production team pointed to unanimously, he said was yours. And he said, and I'm telling you, he said, it's because you're always prepared. He said, you're always easy to work with. He said, you're reliable. Um, so it was like all that work i had been putting in, in New York, you know, um, and the goodwill that I had built up during Priscilla and the connections that I'd made. And I suppose, Fifty years of work ethic in Australia, all paid off in that one job that they went. You know, we know he he'll come up with the goods. So that was very gratifying.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it was it was a great thrill to perform. I loved my role. I loved my role inordinately. Um, and on opening night, the the Weisler's threw us all a party, and suddenly. They called for attention. They clapped their hands and called for attention. And I was standing with Brian Stokes Mitchell, um, who I'd done Camelot with. We'd, um, we'd done that at Kennedy Center together, so we we knew each other. And um, he might have been one of the people who pointed to my name on the list. And uh, Barry Weisler said, right, we now know how to fix the show. We know the problems with it. and We know how to fix it. And we're going to put it back into rehearsal and we're going to open it. We're going to bring it to New York. And Stokes turned to me and said, I'll do it if you do it. I said, are you kidding? Of course I will. And there was much cheering. And and somebody walked past me and said, this will be your second Tony nomination, kid. And I was absolutely floating on air. I thought, wow. And we all continued drinking. And it was sort of like, well, you know, see you tomorrow night at work and and you know we'll finish our run here and then it'll all be hunky-dory and the next morning i bought the new york times and there was the review and it was a pan and we never heard from the Weislers again it was never mentioned ever again the show finished its its week at uh, City Centre and we all went our merry way and that was it. And the problem was, um, it was sort of joyless, the characters, that Douglas Carter Bean had given given them all a backstory that wasn't in the, the film. And so Stokes's character was really unlikable and he was always insulting all the other characters. And, and uh, Tracy Allman and Michael McKean's characters, who'd just been like the songwriters in the film, had this whole backstory where he was an alcoholic and she had once been in love with Stokes's character. And so Michael's character was jealous and kept going on. And so everybody was always fighting and Stokes was really unpleasant to the Laura Osner's character and Michael Burress's character was unpleasant because he was jealous. And so, so sort of, I was the only one who kept coming on and cracking funny, you know, and having all these wonderful songs and, So I came out of it well because I had no angst, you know, Mm -hmm. but I I think it was just, it was hard going for the audience. They just wanted to have a good time. And there was all this plot and there were all these added songs. There were all, Tracy kept singing all these ballads. And so it, it, it just didn't really work. And that was what the review said um and it it was sad because i i was having a whale of a time with my character and i would would happily have continued on with it but it uh, was not to be sadly
0: well i would love to ask you just one final question to conclude our interview which is if what advice would you give to somebody starting out in theater that would be mine
1: um, i think do everything that you're doing i mean i i always tell everybody do your homework, you know, it's very easy for for young people to think that Broadway musical started with Dear Evan Hansen, you know, it's like there is an entire legacy, nothing is new, everything has been done before, and there are people behind you who have paved the way, do your research, you know, read everything, read about all sorts of theatre, read about the world, uh study study everything i think that to just be focused on yourself and your career as be it as an actor or a dancer or a singer and what the business can achieve for you is very narrow and could ultimately i think you've got to be in it for the long game yeah and uh which is why i think you're doing such a wonderful service because you're keeping you. everything alive and you're getting all the stories out there and and the fact that you have the, the knowledge there in your head it's uh, what what i did i was you and it's, uh, it's wonderful because when the industry did let me down or i felt i was letting the industry down uh, i don't feel as though i've missed out on anything now i feel i did everything the yeah to the best of my ability i i i did what i set out to do and i have no regrets and i have nothing left that i i sort of miss or anything it's like I've done that now now the next chapter whatever it is i don't know what it's going to be i'm now ready for that uh, well
0: well thank you this has been just so wonderful i really appreciate your doing
1: it i appreciate you asking me thank you so much
0: Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by dancer in ballet, Broadway, opera, and more, Lawrence Loritz. In the worlds of ballet and opera, he danced with the Paris Opera, the Chicago Ballet, the Los Angeles Music Center Opera, Germany's Hamburg Ballet, the Bat D'Or Dance Company in Israel, and with choreographers such as Robert Joffrey, Alvin Ailey, George Balanchine, Ruth Page, Lee Theodore, Sir Frederick Ashton, and more. He His own company, Dance Celebration, received a special commendation from the President of the United States. On Broadway, he danced in Fontaine and Nureyev on Broadway, and the Herschel Bernardi-led Fiddler on the Roof revival. He also performed in Can-Can and State Fair at the Muni, and on screen in Legs with Gwen Verdon, Annie, Across the Universe, Easy Money, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Sex and the City, Saturday Night Live, The Con is On, and more. As a fitness guru, He released his own exercise video, Total Stretch, and was the choreographer for many bodybuilding stars, including for the Arnold Schwarzenegger NBC television special. He is also the producer and choreographer of the off-Broadway sensation Boobs the Musical, and produced TV's Day of Compassion in order to raise awareness about AIDS across the country. So stay tuned for that interview, and thanks for listening.